0: Today I'm going to talk about about protein, and protein at the moment has considerable valency uh, in a number of different ways, and I'm going to question that also in a number of different ways today. In the, how do I get my protein, eating vegan is in the ascendancy at the moment, and paleo much less so, and... uh, uh, The issues that surround how we should eat, should we all eat vegan? Thinking about this question about protein, it is not a neutral subject. Uh, A range of things that one thinks about when thinking about how do you get your protein, where do you get your protein from, I'm going to cut it in the following way, to consider ethics, global food security, but I'm going to continue that, Um, in the subsequent lecture, environmental issues, (coughs) and then set against the idea of the paleo diet (coughs) and of meat as a natural symbol and as a symbol of nature. So all in the context of production, producing enough food, and so on. when placing protein in the context of global food security much of the global food security debate has been around getting enough calories and the source of those calories is deeply important when those calories come from cereal crops like wheat and rice for example there is adequate, just about adequate protein from those food sources if you balance them with other things to ensure an adequacy of protein in physiological terms. This is questioned when we start to think about quality in food security and when we start to think about what is an adequate protein intake, adequate for what? It becomes more <coughs> of uh, <coughs> ensuring well-being, rather than a minimum safety net um, for, for consumption. So, I'm going to run through these issues briefly before focusing on protein per se. So, why not start with a newspaper? <coughs> the Daily Telegraph. Uh, we all need to stop eating meat, and this is why. So, Alex Proud, a half-German meat lover, thinks it's time to embrace vegetarianism. He's taken a long look at his own meaty diet, coming around to the idea that the enormous piles of beautifully browned sausages, perfectly grilled steaks, crisp, delicious bacon, and the rest of the mixed grill that comprise at least 50% of my diet can be just a little bit wrong. It's not an easy journey for this person. I'm half German, I used to play rugby, I'm six feet two, too tall. I'm designed to run on heavy fuel. And yet, I can't shake the thought that it's likely to have a little winged pig on my shoulder whispering, if you eat a variety of pulses, you need never turn to another of my friends into a sausage again. (coughs) So, (coughs) placing food consumption and protein in the context of global food security, it's common knowledge that per capita, people in the United States on average, people in Spain, people in Germany, consume the highest amounts of meat in the world. But what is driving both meat production and issues in global food security are the Chinese desire to consume more meat. The amount of meat that people in China consume per capita is still very small. But the increase from an almost base zero 30 years ago to a, an increased prosperity driving, a, a driving people to move to a diet which contains much more meat has huge ecological and food security implications at the macro level. I'm going to argue next week that it's China that is and has been driving the global food security scenario in a range of different ways. That's a complex argument in itself, so I'm going to give it much more space than I will this week. The environmental issues associated with meat production you probably all know about. Producing a lot of meat involves often having animals living at close density to each other, living close to each other. And this is damaging to the animals and it's damaging to the land, it's damaging to to, to many aspects of the environment including the eutrophication of surface water, leaching of nitrates and pathogens, Excess nutrients and heavy metals entering uh, soil t- uh, affecting soil fertility. Um, ammonia methane production from 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 uh, the uh, from the feces of, of these animals and so on. So livestock farm waste is three times greater in China than the waste that comes from industry. It's a Huge issue. What is the cost of a burger? The problem about the burger is that it's seen by economists as a u- universal good. That it's a symbol of global price parity for economists. The cost of Big Mac index is something the economists talk about when trying to see what your money can buy you in different countries. You can Google Big Mac index and you can find it. That The places where the Big Mac index is, is, is high Uh, then most commodities are more expensive than than, than wages, where it's low it's the other way around. So the real cost of a burger isn't what you pay for it in the store, it's the amount of feed it takes, Uh, 6.7 pounds of grains and forage for a burger, Uh, 52 gallons of water, Um, 74 square feet of land, and um, 1,000 thermal units for feed production and transport which is enough to power a microwave for 18 minutes. The full economic costing of a burger would price it out of production. One of the shames of present day, the present day economic system is that many things are not fully costed economically, especially environmental issues. That said, there are economists who are working on how to fully cost things to incorporate quality of life and environmental damage. <clears throat> water as well. Being vegan uses much less water. It takes much less water to produce a year's food for a vegan than to produce a month's food for a meat eater. And again, the real cost of water is usually discounted by economists, And we're coming into an age where water wars will become very real. I know that Oxford at the moment is a wash. Actually, it's not really a wash. You want to go upstream to where my village is. That's where they're holding the water back so it doesn't come and flood Oxford at the moment. Seems to be working so far. Uh, but I'll tell you the level of the water, and I know because I've been in it. The level of the water in my lake has risen uh, six inches in the last week. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. So water is an issue in many parts of the world, and water wars are to be faced into the future. Conversely, the marketing of meat is a very sophisticated industry. So the meat lobby in countries like the United States, and across Europe and Australia, is huge. So meat is dressed up as being manly. Eat meat, dress well, goes one advert. Um, this is life. This is, uh, this is meat. This is the symbol of man's desire, his will to survive. For as long as man's instinct to live is his liking for meat, so and he has to be satisfied in his eating, him, always him. It's a very gendered way of thinking about about meat. Advertising has also taken on board the naturalisation of meat. If our ancestors didn't eat meat, our brains wouldn't be the size they are today. So they've recruited evolutionary arguments to say, so what's for dinner? Let's have a steak. Our ancestors knew nothing about iron, B12, zinc and omega-3, they trusted their instincts, and of course I ate meat. So meat as natural. The idea that uh, meat is, uh, is natural, and you should turn to it almost instinctively, Is also placed in adverts like this, tired, washed out, don't blame the heat, eat more meat. Okay, so on and on it goes. So meat is a powerful idea, um, is symbolically loaded in many ways. There's a book by Nick Fitz, Fiddes, F-I-D-D-E-S, um, that talks about meat as a natural symbol, <clears throat> which is quite old, but actually very good in thinking about how the idea of meat is constructed uh, symbolically. Then we have the idea of protein, which is another power, powerful idea. Protein as a fetishized category—it's both present and it's silent—and it drives decisions about how uh, how one should should live one's life. Put your hands up if you have uh, if you're interested in the protein that you consume. Okay, two thirds of the class. Okay, a few people put their hands up because everybody else did. That's okay. No, I don't, don't mind. That's good. Here you are. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely spot on. So in this particular slide, nature's finest protein pack is often is, is guided towards usually athletes who so say, well, the easiest way to get high quality protein is to is to eat beefsteak, You know, train, eat a high uh, high protein meal, then rest and allow that protein to accrete accrete in the muscles. The vegan issue is represented, of course, because there are other ways of obtaining your protein. The pulse fights back because the materiality of protein is in meat but it's also in pulses and those symbols of, uh, of, uh, of meat versus pulses also have also become very, very powerful. So we think about the meat and pulses as proxies for protein but yet we struggle with the idea of what 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 protein actually is because protein is a, you know a series of chemicals building blocks in the body they're difficult to grasp except in the context of food um, and yet uh, it's uh, it's a powerful idea so I'm going to talk you through protein and how the idea of protein became uh, came, uh, be- became became essentialised um, through the process of nutritionism which some of you are aware of. And I've thought about but I'll talk about it a little bit now. So, I'm very keen on knowing who the unsung heroes of the modern world are. I've written in my blog about Celsius. You only talk sure about degrees Celsius, nobody thinks about Professor Celsius, and yet there was a Professor Celsius, and there was a Professor Linnaeus. And oddly enough, we think about Linnaeus in relation to um, in in relation to the schematization of the biological world, and yet they were fiercely in debate over how you should regulate and understand temperature. Okay, two Swedes in the same city and also who hated each other. Do you know what degree zero, according to according to Celsius, would have been a h- hundred? He, was, he set it at a hundred. When Celsius died, Linnaeus tipped it upside down, and that's why we have zero to hundred as being freezing point of water and the boiling point of, uh, of water. You know, fascinates me. Basilius there's another one of my head, Park in Stockholm um, is a, a, a monument to to Basilius. He was a founder of modern chemistry. He was the first to make a distinction between organic and inorganic compounds. Um, he termed a lot of things. Each one of these terms these days would get you a Nobel Prize. Catalysis, polymer, isomer, protein. He was the person who identified this essential substance in animal nutrition from protas of primary importance and termed Uh, termed this thing protein. Subsequently, uh, Mulder in Utrecht observed that all proteins have the same empirical chemical formula. Um, After that, um, once we have the idea that macromolecules from the origins of polymer chemistry that we can identify the polymer structure of proteins is individual substances put together in, system- in a systematic way that do all kinds of jobs in the world in, in the body. So that's protein. Protein, fat, and carbohydrate sit in their own separate ghettos nutritionally until Wilbur Atwater in the late 19th century and early 20th century worked out that they could all be linked by a unit of common currency and that unit of common currency was the calorie. Quite simply, one gram of protein is worth four calories. One gram of carbohydrate is worth four calories. One gram of fat is worth nine calories. And from that, you have a common currency for all foods, a common energetic currency he was working for the United States Department of Agriculture and the significance of this work was in knowing how to feed the rapidly urbanizing populations of the United States at a time when the United States was becoming an industrial power was growing so fast trying to avoid the problems that occurred with industrialization in Europe uh, some between uh, around 100 years before that trying to try and avoid the disease, the food shortages, all the kinds of problems that happen, scientific approach to dealing with food provision for urban populations. This was a good thing. This was an attempt to improve things in the urban places as well as being able to make sure that the engine room of the economy could could carry on working. So we know that you can look at any food whatsoever and determine its calorie content from the amount of protein, fat and carbohydrate it has in it. Does anybody have a carbohydrate-rich substance on them at the moment? No buns? No pastries? Yeah. No? Yeah, you do. Show me your pastry. Oh. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have it? Okay, okay. Um, Think about it, imagine a pastry, it's just before lunchtime, think of any pastry you like. I have a Danish pastry in my mind, a particularly nobbly one, lots of sugar on it and lots of raisins and things in it. Imagine your favourite pastry right now, okay. As you imagine your pastry, um, you would struggle to know how many calories are in that pastry. You know how many calories you, you use in a day, on average it's about two and a half thousand calories this single pastry you have in your mind is probably 10% of your daily requirement of calories. Right? So you better enjoy that pastry because it's, it's a lot of food in, in, in real terms. If I were a scientist and you gave me your pastry and I said, I'll take it to my lab, I'll smash it to pieces, I'll burn it, I'll work out how much protein there is, how much fat and how much carbohydrate. I can burn the whole thing. And get the calorific value just by burning your pastry. You don't want to see that done. You don't want your calorie to be dis- your your pastry to be destroyed. So you can take a sample, and analyze how much protein, fat, and carbohydrate, and then just scale it up to the size of the pastry itself, and then just use the outwater pack just to work out how many calories there are. So you do not need to destroy food to be able to work out how many calories are in something. He was the grandfather of nutritionism and the father of Olympic nutritionism. So, the striking thing was the St. Louis Olympics of 1904 were the first Olympics where scientific nutrition was used to enhance performance in the United States team. The first time that they were thinking about sports nutrition in a systematic, scientific way. number of calories, the amount of protein, and so on according to the science of the day Um, the United States won 85% of all the medals I looked and in the 1900 Olympics the United States got 14% of the medals in London in 1908 they got 16% in Athens they got 11% of the medals it made a striking difference you see after that all the all the countries were start where we're using scientific nutrition to improve performance food as a performance enhancing substance and especially and especially protein the grandfather of nutritionism nutritionism because nutritionism is the reduction of food to nutrients we all eat food emma has a fantastic pastry which she would share if she had food. Yeah, of course. Good person. And um, this pastry I have reduced to calories. I've reduced to protein, energy and fat. Uh, Protein, carbohydrate and fat. None of you will identify with those macronutrients in that pastry but you'll love the pastry. You like the food but you're not eating for the nutrition. Reducing food to nutrients can do an important job in terms of understanding food security. How many calories are being produced in a country for a population? And what's the average availability of calories? That kind of data is standard everyday data now for understanding food security and is published publicly. You all have free access to it. Uh, The Food and Agriculture Organization has it for every country that subscribes to the system, which is just about every country, and you can look at food availability, calorie availability, protein availability, and so on. Reduces foods to nutrients, and that is useful in one context. But real people do not eat nutrients, they eat food. So this reduction into changing calories, making common currency for monitoring food security, does one kind of work for populations where nation states take on the responsibility for the nutritional health of their population no country wants to see food shortage no country wants to see famine adequate food security up until recently has been about getting enough calories also sets the minimum standards for population consumption the right number of calories the right number of uh, uh, the right amount of protein the right amount of uh, different micronutrients and so on all set in the uh, nutritional standards if you will they're normative recommendations for population health that's not to say we can't critique it and we can it's used for regulating state level food production um, relating nutrition to health and disease relate, regulating global, global food security but nutritionism is guilty of several crimes. One crime is the vitamin donut which doesn't exist anymore, but they did for a while for pep and vigour eat vitamin donuts. Each donut fortified with a minimum of 25 units of vitamin B1, be good, hey! Uh, The cornflake, often been said that the cornflake contains more nutrition, less nutrition than cardboard. That's not strictly true. But in the process of making a cornflake, you have to take a grain of corn, you have to macerate it, and then you have to you know, make it into blobs and then, then then heat it, push it through a mill, then dry it out. It smashes a lot of the micronutrition. It's just smashed by that process, just in making the cornflake. But we like cornflakes because they're crunchy. OK. I don't know. I don't really like cornflakes, but... I'm just putting out the quality, quality line. Um, fortified with vitamins and ions, they've got to be good. Oftentimes what's being done is the um, uh, the processes of production are destroying the nutrition in foods and putting things back as a way of ensuring that industrialized food production can cause minimal nutritional harm by replacing what's already there. There are of course other things that the supplementation of poor quality foods is one thing and then you get the the medicalization of nutrition with things like whey protein, I've got to confess, my son is consuming whey protein right now Um, he's a swimmer he's trying to stay, keep the muscle mass, so he's consuming more protein than he needs to but he's doing that. Whey protein has been essentialized as a form of supplement for for sports. The whey protein is a major output of the dairy industry. Can anybody tell me what the price of a small bottle of milk is? Nobody, nobody drinks milk. Okay. Great. Um, the price of a small bottle of water. Again, no idea. It's great. Um, suffice it to say that you can probably buy milk often more cheaply than a bottle of water, which is extraordinary, because this milk has had to be produced by a cow. The cow has had to live. The cows had to grow. It's a whole system of production that goes with producing milk. Water. The system is different, but it's actually much cheaper to produce produce water there's so much milk now that is not going into everyday consumption that they are the major one of the major sources of whey protein is is from milk so taking the milk that a cow honestly produces and reducing it to a protein powder seems to me wrong somehow I think I'd rather see my whey protein being produced in a in a factory straightforwardly because it's being reduced to a chemical So, consumer groups for protein-rich foods. Now, this is being targeted. There's surplus uh, milk on the market, which is being turned into whey protein. Whey protein is being used to um, minimise the effects of age-related muscle loss and targeted to the elderly. It's being targeted to children, targeted to dieters, targeted to sports people in all kinds of forms, including things like whey protein bars and so on. Being pumped into all kinds of things at the moment because of the concern about protein, and yet. Um, the way that it gets to be where it is isn't actually, isn't actually so healthy. But to turn to an ethnography called Whey Protein Stories, um, carried out in, in Copenhagen. It's my good friend Tener Janssen, who's a central figure in this, in this study, and they're looking at whey protein. So food consists primarily of macronutrients, fat, carbohydrate, and protein. The body can store and utilize all of them, but only protein serves as a structural functional functional component. In their ethnographical study, um, a, they've looked at the knowledge of protein and how it helps people understand active aging. So it mobilizes and configures aging bodies and good later life. How whey protein is related to you know, and its consumption is related to aging bodies and the everyday practices in which whey protein is enacted into being. Long fancy words, okay. That people are encouraged to consume more protein. Where does this protein come from? If you don't have the usual standard food categories, you create a special category. The special category becomes whey protein and supplements and foods that are targeted towards older people. And so people start to consume new special foods which are going to stop them you know being inactive as they get older and you have this kind of idealization of an active healthy couple which is straight from the Copenhagen University website you know a man and woman walking in a leafy field sounds fantastic reality in Copenhagen is Lena is much more typical of the people that are getting this supplementation Lena does not want to get old Lena does not want to stop being beautiful Lena goes naked swimming in the up there every morning and I know Lena and uh, you know, she's in this supplementation trial. She said, it's not a meal. I know it's probably good for something, somehow. That's why I take it with my vitamins. Um, but I don't really want science and industry to develop new kinds of products that are not even real food. So the question about whey protein is not real food, but it's something I have to do to enact my good Danish citizenship and not grow old in an unhealthy way. So I consume it. Um, but then, the other side of it is stabilizing weight is important, but not in terms of, of gaining weight. She says, if I gain weight, I'll stop eating the supplements, because people still turn their heads when I walk down the street, looking good, it's aging well. So, whey protein is, is, a, is a kind of ambiguous substance that, you know, people are negotiating. It's not something you would automatically want to do. It is of food, but not food, and the struggle is how to find the right place to put it. So meat and protein is the joining of, of two powerful ideas. Meat, as I've said, is like the dominion over nature, hunting and subduing the wild, the motif of blood, meat as eating, cooking as linking cosmology, zoology and culture, and Western animal-human relationships. Protein is of muscle substance, of work, of food, of cellular structure, of gene expression, a whole set of other kinds of powerful metaphors. So when you put protein and meat together you are unlocking a lot of powerful metaphors. So in consuming protein and consuming meat, are you consuming and embodying nature? So that's protein and that's meat. I'm going to now turn to Kwashoko. I talked about it last week in relation to infectious disease. I'm going to talk about it in relation to, to protein today because it's telling of how ideas about protein have changed across time. Kwashoko has for a long time, been framed as a protein problem, a protein shortage problem. And I would bet you anything that you will find at least one medical textbook. That will say that protein deficiency is associated with Koshoko and is primarily an issue of protein deficiency I would bet you will still find that Koshoko has a history of being a you know a problem of consuming a poor diet or a maize rich diet a problem associated with weaning um, with protein deficiency through to the 1950's it became a third world food security issue, again associated with protein. And in the nineteen eighties, protein became less important in relation to infection, micronutrient deficiency, and aflatoxin production. And I'm going to focus much more on this third world inverted commerce food security issue, when Quashok was widespread in Africa, common in South America, protein was seen as protein production was seen as the way to be able to uh, solve what was seen to be the dominant food security issue in the world. The kind of evidence, this is kind of food geography of Anas. He looks at protein to energy ratios in relation to severe undernutrition in West Africa. The places that have the lowest amount of protein in the diet, regardless of calories, have the highest levels of, of, of course you the places as you move towards, towards the Sahel belt, the diet shifts from plantains to being, uh, to being more uh, uh, cereal-based and then to being eventually pastoral-based. So the protein quality and quantity changes empirically across these zones. So that's the kind of argument that was made about protein and, uh, and uh, its uh, its importance in Korsh a few things changed. Most importantly the science. There will be a good science and technology study to look at um, how thinking about protein has changed across the ages. So the international agencies FAO, UNU, World Health Organization, strongly linked with protein deficiency. One of these big meetings they have periodically, the tri-agency meetings they have in Geneva, usually the Palais de 1952 was again firmly seen as being a a problem of protein malnutrition. One of the reasons why protein was given this big emphasis was that the understanding of protein requirements was quite different to the present day. Protein requirements were set pretty well at double what we believe them to be now. The science was as good as it could be, new methodologies showed that actually The relationship between protein and energy is important. My PhD supervisor never finished his doctorate because he was working on exactly this issue the relationship between protein and energy in in, in bodies. By the time he collected his data and started publishing, he was on a wave. He was surfing the wave of nutritional science moving very very quickly and publishing work on protein-energy relationships because this was key to understanding the protein issue but actually the protein deficiency that one saw in the global south was most commonly associated with energy deficiency and what they showed was that as energy intake declines so protein requirements increase because what's happening in the body is a metabolism of protein for energy. So you can have endogenous protein malnutrition because your protein is being consumed to keep you alive as opposed to being used for bodily maintenance. So those things were, those things were, were, were identified. So in 1968, the protein gap, protein crisis, Loomed, loomed, loomed large in the world. When we got to the 1970s, this period of six years when my, my, my supervisor was working on this particular idea, the idea of protein deficiency was exploded because they found that if you can decrease how much energy somebody gets in their diet, then that protein is not going to be consumed for production, uh, for, for, for bodily maintenance, because you're not getting enough dietary energy. The paradigm shifted from protein deficiency to energy deficiency. If you can get enough energy in most societies, you'll also get enough, enough protein, because most cereal-based diets, at any rate, have enough protein in them if you get enough dietary energy. By 1985, the debate had moved to protein-energy interactions and adaptations at different levels of energy and protein intake. Um, that was a time that I first went to, to India to work with someone called Prakash Shetty, who became the, the, the chief nutritionist of the Food and Agriculture Organization um, in the United Nations. This set of relationships was changing understandings of nutrition in the Global South. So protein quality and protein quality, How well or poorly the human body uses a protein, the essential amino acid profile of, the body, of, of, of a protein, of a food, needs to match that of the body. The digestibility of a protein is important. In terms of the quality of a protein, can you use all the protein in a food that you consume? And how much do you use that? energy? depends on the amino acid balance of your body and the amino acid balance of the food you're consuming. So in order, that is the highest quality protein you can have. Egg white is actually the standard Egg white is most closely balanced in relation to 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 your body's composition of amino acids. Number two um, is the beef steak. I Number three is the potato. So, so Essentially, consuming large amounts of potato is actually very good for you. You you know if you eat ten grams of beefsteak, you need to eat a hundred grams of potato to get the same amount of protein. But the protein quality isn't that different. In terms of these two things. So, but you know, most people do eat more potato than beefsteak. So you can get potato uh, protein from, from unlikely sources. Then, of course, there are all these different pulses that have high levels of protein, but the quality of that protein is, is much lower. So, <clears throat> different foodstuffs, staples, have different protein qualities because they have a limiting amino acid this has to be complemented with something else traditional diets where people consume rice and lentils for example you put together uh, put together rice which is lysine deficient and you put together pulses which are cysteine and methionine deficient you put the two together they are complementary and so the protein quality of the combined food is much higher and you can look at so many traditional diets and see that there's protein complementary complementarity in those diets over and over and over again there's a logic to traditional diets in terms of protein complementarity even when there's, there's, there's no meat uh, uh, in the diet it balancing the, the, the protein and lysine deficiency is a central issue when thinking about food security, because most of the cereals are lysine deficient, so you have to find foods that are complementary with them, and finding the the right balance of protein foods without having to resort to the production of meat. This was a challenge that the United Nations sought in trying to avoid Protein crisis. They could see a crisis of production of protein-rich foods in the world, because protein-rich foods are more difficult to produce, often more expensive. If you're involving animals, they are hugely more expensive than producing than producing p- pulses. So the aims of this were to um, improve the efficiency and scope of, of, of different kinds of, of, of food uh, uh, food sources, including. Uh, unconventional ones include the direct use of oil seeds and oilseed protein concentrates rather than turn stuff into oil and then feed it to animals so that humans should consume the protein from that directly uh, increase the production of synthetic amino acids There's so still an age of chemistry and the quality of protein in cereals and other vegetable sources and promote the development of single cell protein for animal feeding and direct use by human beings we have a debate that's emerged just quite recently, crickets versus beef. The debate about insect consumption for protein, in its form, it is no different to the debate from the, from the 1960s in terms of where do you get your protein from. Let's find conventional, non-conventional ways of identifying, um, identifying uh, sources of, sources of protein. So there are lots of things that were formulated in the 1970s. Protein food mixtures. The most commonly known, that in Caparina, Guatemala, Mexico, especially. So, maize, concede, flour, supplementation of vitamin A, lysine, and other things with a 27% content of, of protein. A whole range of foods that were designed as supplements to be consumed um, to bolster the protein content of people's diets. Now, of course, the problem. With these kinds of nutritional supplements, is they are supplements; they're not food. How people use them then is ambiguous. Sometimes it's thought of as medicine. There's a thing that's currently used in refeeding, in uh, in uh, 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 humanitarian relief, um, and that's called plumpy nut. Okay, plumpy nut's mostly ground nut-based, energy and protein, and there it's. People talk about medicinal feeding. That this is not food. This is medicine. So first of all, it has to reach the people that might be seen to be deficient in it. So, so you have this intersection of food and medicine. Supplements. It's not food. It's not really medicine. It's somewhere in between. And so categories have to be identified, much in the same way as the, the Lena in Copenhagen had to work out how to. Use whey protein supplements because she said, Well, it doesn't fit, um, so I put it with my vitamin supplements, so that's where I put it. But actually, it's really disgusting. Um, but I'll take it because my government says I should take it, and I trust my government, which most people in Denmark generally do. The great protein fiasco focused on an exaggeration of the role of protein in nutrition, so this was. The markets for protein production were scaled up to produce all kinds of protein sources to meet a shortage which was then seen not to be real. Not to be real because the physiological needs for protein were identified in relation to, first of all, the relationship between energy intake and protein, as I've already mentioned. And secondly, I'll just flip to two slides, this slide here, and I'll explain what it is in relation to protein adaptation. I worked in Papua New Guinea where the sago eating populations often had protein intakes were extraordinarily low. The sweet potato consuming populations in the highlands also had very low protein intakes, but no evidence of kwashiorkor, no evidence of severe protein undernutrition. What this represents is what are recommended nutrient allowances in relation to physiology, which are set at 97% of the population, safe levels of protein intake. It's already two standard deviations above the physiological needs. So you set it higher because it's a public health kind of cutoff for ensuring population safety, if you will. But then, there's a whole range of populations that have SAGO users, people in Papua New Guinea have extraordinarily low protein intakes and seem to be okay, to populations that have extraordinarily high protein intakes And also seemed to metabolize perfectly well. So it's a big adaptation to protein, protein requirements. The missing piece at this time was not understanding the microbiome. But in fact, the microbiome among Papua New Guinea sweet potato eaters was adjusted to extracting amino acids from otherwise undigestible foods and making those available to the body that there was recycling of nitrogen recycling of metabolic products that could be used to synthesize amino acids in the body, gut and the human operating in, operating in synergy. So it was the diet that was consumed the bacteria that grew as a consequence of that diet were then adapted to scavenge nitrogen Protein nitrogen that could be used for the synthesis of uh, synthesis of protein. So <clears throat> if we put protein into a biocultural frame, the protein needs of humanity are known to be lower than they are for, for chimpanzees and other primate species. We have a slow growth rate extended duration of childhood and the daily cost for energy and protein are low despite being you know quite large primates this plasticity in protein metabolism is extremely variant at population level and is plastic at the individual level according to your diet you can you know you can adjust to higher or lower levels of protein intake this is important in relation to you know should i eat vegan Yes, get used to it. If you get used to it, your body will adjust, your microbiome will adjust, and you will reset your protein metabolism to a a different level. There's so much flexibility in human physiology that we really don't capitalize on that that, that flexibility. Protein deficiency is extremely rare, and it usually occurs only in association with infection, especially diarrheal disease. As I've said, there are some very low protein intakes that have been reported in traditional societies in the absence of signs of protein deficiency. Low protein intake, however, might be associated with low resistance to infection. And this is an important issue which I'll come on to very, very presently. Low protein diets are associated with deterioration in bone mass, bone architecture, and strength in later life. So the issue about Bulking up the amount of protein that older people consume is about maintaining muscle mass. Maintaining muscle mass will then maintain bone integrity, and the likelihood of falling over and breaking a hip or something mechanical that then reduces the quality of life uh, significantly. Protein requirements, the idea of protein requirements, have been challenged in the other direction as well. So, here's Michael Phelps, Swimming Fly. This man consumes or used to consume 11,000 calories a day, um, an awful lot of it for breakfast and um, his protein requirement was nearly double that of a mortal human being. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, you know, he's, he's amazing, um, truly, truly. Uh, the. Issue at the upper end is that in high-performance athletes, there's an anabolic component the maintaining a muscle mass, which is not natural, if you will. Maintaining a muscle mass at a very high level involves consuming a lot of protein. Knowing most of it is going to be used as energy, metabolized differently, and a small fraction of that is going to be used to maintain a high level of muscle mass. But at the highest levels that small amount of protein, that additional bit of extra muscle mass can give you the edge in relation to to, to other people. So, maintaining the maximum level of muscle mass that your physiology can take. That said, there are many vegan athletes. Um, Okay, here's the Williams sisters, the vegans. I like cricket, he's my favorite. This is Peter Siddle, he's Australian, he's called the Orc. Um, they say he's really ugly, um, but he's a really nice man, um, and he's not playing cricket. Uh, but he's, uh, he's, he's a very, very fierce competitor, very fierce competitor indeed, and, uh, and, uh, and he's vegan, so many, many vegan athletes. So there's possibilities easily to think carefully about what you eat and be able to obtain the protein that's needed to even to get that edge at the highest level consuming. Consuming a vegan diet. Another issue is how you eat and nutrient timing. There was one seminar uh, from Alex Betts about nutrient timing. When you eat is important. When you eat, what you eat. So, most people will consume the most protein in the meal at the end of the day. Certainly, most in European societies. The ideal way of consuming your your protein is across the day. Bigger breakfasts, about the same size of lunch and a smaller supper. Balancing all of this out so the protein metabolism is maintained at more or less a constant level across the day, rather than moving faster at the end of the day. Consume more protein at the end of the day, most of that will be wasted, as does dietary energy. Compared to in the morning, um, not getting enough... Um, uh, protein to be able to t- maintain an um, anabolism. Coming back to Michael Phelps again, I um, don't know what he used to do, but usually swimmers will swim four kilometers before breakfast, then take a breakfast and, um, and which, which is high in protein, then rest. And the rest is about turning that protein in the diet into muscle protein rest is as important as almost as important as the exercise so getting the balance of these activities is hugely important if you're an old person who's losing their muscle it's something I'm starting to worry about um, then that balance is important the physical activity is important in relation to what you eat and the time at which you eat all of these things are, are important okay eating protein in excess is it useful well it's difficult to overdose on protein but it can happen and it has happened, it's been shown, it's been demonstrated it confers satiety, eating more protein means that you, uh, you, your appetite declines and so it's useful in weight loss diets so there are a number of weight loss diets that say eat a lot of protein, front load your protein and then you lose your appetite and so you won't want to, to, to eat more that can work, it doesn't always work but it can work um, it stimulates, stimulates immunoglobulin factor 1, which promotes skeletal development and bone formation, and it allows an adequate intake of essential amino acids across a range of different foods. So you have great dietary flexibility if you over-consume on protein, because you can eat almost anything. You know, you don't have to think too carefully. If, you eat, if you're eating vegan, you have to think carefully about what you're eating because you have to think carefully about where your sources of B vitamins are coming from, where your proteins coming from, and so on. So you have to think more carefully. In a way, you'd say, if you have to consume less protein, then maybe you have to think more carefully about what you eat, which is surely, in terms of environmentalism and sustainability, a good thing. It's also permissive of the protein cost of infection. Is an idea that nutritional requirements, nutritionism, is a product of historically located thinking. By the time that they got working on nutritional requirements in Western countries, Austria, UK, France, Italy, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, uh, the United States, Soviet Union, the epidemiological transition that happened, infectious disease was low, so it wasn't factored into thinking about nutritional requirements. Now, if you're thinking in terms of What are the protein requirements to allow an adequate immune response? In the global south, you should be thinking about this. You should be what, how much protein should you consume to allow you to have a safety margin for an adequate immune response? It's not factored in because it's a Eurocentric approach to nutritional requirements. Another aspect of nutritionism, the nutritional requirements are dictated by... The perspectives and frameworks of the global north, and not necessarily of the, and not usually of the global south. Okay, beef versus the lentil. What are the criteria uh, by which we judge sources of protein intake? In sum, the criteria are taste, ethics, production sustainability. We are embodying our sustainability by choosing the way, or lack of sustainability, by choosing the ways in which we eat. The second component is the human right to food, which under sort of Roosevelt, um, the Roosevelt rights agenda post-World War II said that all people have the right to adequate nutrition, whatever that might be, because that keeps changing and that there are corporate, local, indigenous, national, transnational ways of framing that right. In as much as there will be local modes of production, there will be indigenous forms of eating, that inform what the right to food should be in different places. I'm fairly certain in this room there's enough representation from across the world to suggest that the, how many of you would frame your right to food differently from each other according to your backgrounds you're alright but there's a dissonance in understanding what that right should be and of course that becomes very quickly political and then where does this protein debate sit in relation to a range of other debated human rights of trade, of water for future generations of technologies and which technologies are appropriate and then should it be the group or should it be the individual? Is it my right to eat what I want or is this consumption a matter of collective action? A lot of different questions. The sources of proteins are globally important for the sake of sustainability and for the sake of the world, but at least you can at least stop eating meat. So should we all eat vegan, in the words of David Bowie, planet Earth is blue, there's nothing I can do, but actually there's lots you can do. Thank you. Yeah.